0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 11, Numbers chapter 10. Well, the preparations by God through Moses for establishing Israel as a nation of people under the banner of Yehovah are almost complete. Now last week in Numbers chapter 9, we even saw Israel celebrate their first memorial Passover. That is, that Passover back in Egypt was not an observance. It was the actual event itself. It was that dreadful and wonderful night that God delivered the Hebrews from Egypt. The Passover of Numbers 9 was looking back as a remembrance of that event that had taken place about a year earlier. So over for over, for the next 1,300 years or so, Pesach, Passover, was observed by Israel as a day to celebrate their exodus. That is why on Passover of about 30 AD, that Yeshua transformed that celebration from not only a remembrance of Israel's redemption from Egyptian slavery, but also to a remembrance of him and this unmatched redemption that he offered. He even used the word remembrance. Do this, this Passover Seder, unleavened bread and wine representing his body and his blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And this was because indeed his followers followers were being redeemed from the bondage to sin. And then, of course, the wages of sin, which is death. And with all this talk of remembrance let me remind you that the wages of sin equates to the curse of the law it's just basically two ways of saying the same thing please hear me on this and take take it take this not only for yourself but tell especially your believing brothers and sisters That the curse of the law is not the law itself. The curse of the law is the consequence of breaking that law. It's a rather big difference. And that consequence is death. The curse of sinning is not the sin itself. The curse of sinning is the consequence, the wage of sinning, which is death. What defines sin? What tells us which behaviors and attitudes are in line with His will and which aren't? God says it is His law. He says it is His Torah. We must do all we can to educate a very unenlightened church about a terrible false and unscriptural doctrine that the law itself is a curse. Because the giver of the law is God. Therefore, the law is good. Right, And God doesn't change. The Lord doesn't give us what is bad, then tell us to be obedient to it, only to turn around later, And and, and so say that it was actually bad and to obey it's now wrong. I mean, that's crazy making. If, If he would do that, why would he not sometime in the future abolish what he's done in the New Testament via Yeshua, declare that bad and wrong, and then give us something else again? The next thing we dealt with in chapter 9 was the fire cloud. And it was the sign of God's presence with Israel. But it was also to be Israel's navigation system. When the fire cloud moved, Israel moved. When the fire cloud came to rest, so did Israel. You know, there couldn't be any finer example, nor simpler example, of what it means to walk with God, to follow God. When He moves, we move. When He rests, we rest. All else is futility. It's, it's, it's just self. It's meaningless activity. Let's read Numbers chapter 10 together. Adonai said to Moses, Make two trumpets. Make them of hammered silver. Use them for summoning the community and for sounding the call to break camp and move on. When they're sounded, the entire community is to assemble before you at the entrance to the tent of meeting. If only one of them sounded, then just the leaders, the heads of the clans of Israel, are to assemble before you. Now, when you sound an alarm, the camps to the east will commence traveling. When you sound a second alarm, the camps to the south will set out they will sound alarms to announce when to travel. However, when the community is to be assembled, you are to sound, but don't sound an alarm. It will be the sons of Aharon the Kohanim, Aaron the high priest, who are to sound the trumpets. This will be a permanent regulation for you throughout all your generations. When you go to war in your land against an adversary who is oppressing you, you are to sound an alarm with the trumpets. Then you will be remembered before Adonai, your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Also on your days of rejoicing at your designated times and on Rosh Hodesh, You are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. These will be a reminder before your God. I'm Adonai, your God. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the people of Israel moved out in stages from the Sinai desert. The cloud stopped in the Paran desert. So they set out on their first journey in keeping with Adonai's order through Moses. In the lead was the banner of the camp of the descendants of Judah, whose companies moved forward. Over his company was Nachshon, the son of Aminadav. Over the company of the tribe of the descendants of Issachar was Natanel, the son of Zuar. Over the company of the descendants of Zebulun was Eliav the son of Halon. Then the tabernacle was taken down, and the descendants of Gershon and the descendants of Merari set out, carrying that tabernacle. Now next, the banner of the camp of Reuben, moved forward by companies. Over his company was Eilitzur, the son of Shdur, and over the company of the tribe, of the descendants of Shimon, was Shlomuel, the son of Tsurishitai. And over the company of the descendants of God was Eliasoph, the son of Dwell. Then the descendants of Kahat set out, carrying the sanctuary, so that at the next camp, the tabernacle could be set up before they arrived. Well, the banner of the camp of the descendants of Ephraim moved forward by companies. And over his company was Elishamah, the son of Amahud. And over the company of the tribe of the descendants of Manesha, was Gamliel, the son of Padatsur. Over the company of the descendants of Binyamin was Abdan, the son of Gidoni, The banner of the camp of the descendants of Dan, forming the rear guard for all the camps, moved forward by companies. And over his company was Achiezer, the son of Amishadai. Now, over the company of the tribe of the descendants of Asher was Pagiel, the son of Ochran, And over the company of the descendants of Naphtali was Ahirah, the son of Enon. This is how the people of Israel traveled, by companies. Thus, they move forward. Now, Mose said to Hobab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We're traveling to the place about which Adonai said, I will give it to you. Come with us, we'll treat you well, because Adonai has promised good things to Israel. But he replied, I will not go. I would rather go back to my own country and my own kinsmen. And Moses continued, please don't leave us, because you know that we have to camp in the desert. You can serve as our eyes. If you do go with us, then whatever good Adonai does for us, we'll do the same for you. So they set out from Adonai's mountain. They traveled for three days. And the Ark of the Testimony went ahead of them on this three-day journey as they looked for a new place to stop. The cloud of Adonai was over them during the day as they set out from the camp. And when the Ark moved forward, Moses said, Arise, Adonai. May your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. And when when it stopped, he said, Return, Adonai, of the many, many thousands of Israel. Well, this is the last preparation before Israel's march out into the wilderness. And this last preparation involves the use of trumpets. The basic idea is... The silver trumpets are used to signal to people that an instruction from God, an oracle from God, has come. And it then signals how the people are to respond in a general sense. Now the trumpets are kind of like air raid sirens or a weather alert radio. Okay, The trumpets are to be made of hammered silver. But the Bible doesn't give us much information about how they look. However, Josephus does. And we even have ancient coins from Israel that picture the trumpets. There is even an engraving of the silver trumpets on the Arch of Titus. Okay, the Roman who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD and then looted the temple of its gold and silver. Okay, and of course that's located in Rome. So we know what the trumpets looked like. They were more or less a straight tube flared out at the end. They were something actually less than 18 inches in length. And verse 2 tells us exactly what they were to be used for. To summon the community of Israel and to set their divisions into motion. In other words, these trumpets were blown when it was necessary for Moses to tell the people something. Or they were used to tell the four divisions of Israel... To get up and move. Now recall that Israel's 12 tribes had been grouped in divisions of three tribes each. Four divisions, three tribes each. And then with each three-tribe division was assigned a specific place of encampment, according to compass points, around the tabernacle at the center. Beginning in verse 3, the actual call of the trumpets, the different ways that they're played, Okay, are defined so that everybody knows what they mean. Now, obviously, this system of directing the actions and moving the people by means of sounding a horn or beating a drum was neither new nor invented by Israel. The the system had been in use for centuries before them in almost all known cultures. And then, as here for Israel, the main use was for the military. It was for directing an army. Now, let's talk about these trumpets for a couple minutes. First know that these silver trumpets are not the same thing as shofars. Um, Now, I'll go ahead. We can know by their description... And they're specific names that they have different purposes. Now, in Hebrew, these silver trumpets are called hotoritza. Hotoritza, all right. And while shofar is the Hebrew word for an animal horn or an antler, that's certainly not what these are made of. Okay, a shofar is not, by the way, an earlier and more primitive version of hotoritza. All right, a metal trumpet, as some have supposed now their their uses are different not so much actually in what they're used for but rather who uses them okay in in the bible the common people used a shofar but the silver trumpets could only be blown by priests now some some of the examples we find The shofars are used to frighten an enemy. We find that in Judges 7. To warn that an enemy is coming, Hosea 5. Uh, To call an army to battle, Judges 6. To call for an army to stop fighting, 2 Samuel. To call people to rebel against injustice, 2 Samuel. The shofar was even blown to declare the coronation of a king, Kings 9. And to bring down the walls of Jericho. Yet the same story of the walls of Jericho will find that those silver trumpets were also blown. We'll see in Hosea 5 and 2 Kings 9 that the use of trumpets for basically the same reasons as blowing a shofar. In fact, we'll often find that both shofars and silver trumpets are blown at the same time for similar purposes. And that's led many Bible translations to completely mix up Shofars and trumpets and using the terms interchangeably and that's an error. Now it's also important to know that priests were always an integral part of an army. Okay, today we have chaplains. Okay? In ancient cultures they were called war priests. Okay. And that was almost universal among civilizations and cultures. It was no different for Israel. Whenever Israel went to war, some of their priests were involved and one of their duties was to sound those trumpets. Now I'm not going to delve very deeply into all the different kinds of horn blasts and, and signals, but recognize that the various alarms could generally be played either on a shofar or a trumpet. What couldn't be changed though was that only priests could blow the trumpets. In general, it could be said that the longer blasts were for calling either the leaders of Israel together or for assembling all the people. The shorter, more staccato sounds were used in battle for directing troops. In Hebrew, the longer blasts were called tachah or tachyah and the shorter blasts were called teruah. It is certainly... It is, it's is—it's absolutely a certainty that it worked that way in battle and that the military commander would tell the priests what signal to blow. And the priests would blow those signals to the army from uh, some strategic point that was available, high up if possible, using those silver trumpets. And then the field commanders down low of the leaders, the, div- of the leaders of the divisions and the units, they would repeat those calls to all their men on the shofars. Now, verse 5 tells us that when the silver trumpets are used to signal for the divisions of Israel to move, that the first time the trumpets are sounded using teruah, or short blasts, it is the division that camps to the superior east side of the tabernacle that's to spring into action. That division is led by Judah. The second round of teruah, blasts, says then that those camped on the south side, the second most prestigious camping position, as led by Reuben, they're now to move. And one of the key purposes of the horn blast, according to verse 9, is that when the horns are blown during the battle, the Lord will remember and Israel would be delivered. In essence the silver trumpet blasts are like a prayer a prayer to remind God that even the blowing of the trumpets is in itself his command to Israel. And so his law is being obeyed. Interestingly, the essence of the Dead Sea Scrolls had a lot to say about the use of trumpets as a device of worship and a device of war. They speak of trumpets of remembrance, And of the use of trumpets for, and this is interesting, the vengeful remembrance at the appointed time of God. The vengeful remembrance at the appointed time of God. Now at this appropriate time, and I really don't know when that is yet, I'm going to speak to you in depth. Maybe it'll be a special evening. About phrases we're going to find Jesus using. That are uniquely essence word structures. Now, phrases that we're going to find almost word for word in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, these phrases don't necessarily identify Messiah with the essence. I'm not saying Yeshua was a, was an essence. But phrases and terms he uses that actually even often refer to the essence. In fact, the essence were big on end times, doctrines and teachings. And more, we're discovering their influence on the people of Judah at the time of Jesus and before, as well as their influence on the writings of the New Testament. Point being that the essence teaching on the holy use of trumpets, remember they to only be used by priests, is echoed in the New Testament comments of Jesus and others as they describe end times happenings. I gave you one prominent phrase found in the Dead Sea Scrolls about trumpets being blown for the vengeful remembrance of the appointed time of God. And what better term can we find to describe the wrath that Jehovah is going to pour out on the world as the coming of the Christ nears than the vengeful remembrance of an appointed time of God. Now let me list for you just a few places in the New Testament where we're going to find the blowing of trumpets signaling this vengeful remembrance. Matthew 24:31. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. 1 Corinthians 15.52 In a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Revelation 8.13 And I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Revelation 9.13, the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had a trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. See, the thing is that trumpets are used to call the congregation together for a message, for worship, for warning, for action, for war. Further, they're to be used by priests, or put it in another way, they're to be used only by those anointed for special high holy status. Therefore, that's why we'll see trumpets being blown in heaven by angels. Because they are certainly beings of special high holy status. But even more, the use of trumpets in the New Testament is but a precise extension of this God pattern laid down here in Torah, which is always a pretty good thing to recognize. Then in verse 10, we see something else about these silver trumpets. They shall be blown on joyous occasions. Those occasions being the seven biblical feasts and the new moons. All right, meaning the start of every new month. And during those festivals and new moons, and there seems to be some interpretive room for sounding them during other joyous occasions, by the way, in honor of Yahweh, they shall also be blown during the sacrifice of the burnt offering and the offering of well-being. In Hebrew, the olah and the shlamim sacrifices. Now, by the way, let me point out something about these trumpets. This is not about playing music. This is not about playing songs on a trumpet. This is about sounding the detailed blasts as defined in the earlier verses. These trumpets are not musical instruments. The the Levites had dedicated musical instruments and they played them, usually while accompanying the singing of psalms. These particular silver trumpets were Torah-ordained communication devices. Now verse 11 begins a momentous time in the Torah. The beginning of the journey into the wilderness. And it begins on the 20th day of the second month of the second year after they left Egypt. That is 13 months and 20 days. Now I tell you that there is some minor disagreement over whether they were gone from Egypt at this time for 11 months or 13 months. And it has to do with some ambiguity over whether the references to months and years were based on the date they left Egypt or based on a pre-existing calendar, and I think it was based on the amount of time after they left Egypt. That's my opinion. Now, the first period of time surrounding Israel's exodus, that is, from the leaving of Egypt to their arrival at Mount Sinai, then the receiving of the law, and then the building of the tabernacle, and the ordination of the priesthood, and then the census, and now the construction of the two silver trumpets you know what this was boot camp this was boot camp it was preparation for what would begin on this the 20th day of the second month of the second year as bid has been ordained the trumpets now blow and the first division to move was Judah now this Meant not only the tribe of Judah, but also the other two tribes that were associated with it, the camped next to it as a unit, Issachar and Zebulun. Well, in the procedure of striking camp, the next thing that was to happen in order was that the tabernacle was to be disassembled, and then the clans of Mershon, uh, rather Gershon and Merari, were to load up the portion of the sanctuary that they were responsible for and put it in wagons. then they would go ahead of the clan of Kahat who would be carrying the Ark of the Covenant and other sacred furniture because this way, we're told, the tabernacle could be reassembled at their next stopping point ready and waiting to receive the sacred tabernacle objects and the Ark when they arrived. Well, after the Gershonites and the Merarites, remember now, what I'm speaking of here are clans of, of Levites. Then the three tribe, tribes that formed the division of Reuben would be mustered. And after them, the division of Ephraim. And then at the rear of the column would be the division led by Dan. Now the proper way to think of this, and if you've been in the military, this is going to be a little more understandable, is that they set out in battle order. Let us never forget that the way the camp and the march were organized was to create this cohesive and enormous 600,000-man army. They were going to have to take the land of Canaan, the land promised to Abraham, by force. All the prayer, the worship the ritual, the observances they engaged in, this was but preparation. They did it out of obedience. But it was what preceded the action. And it was what came before doing battle. This is something we Christians really need to rethink. Somehow or another, because Christ is correctly referred to as the Prince of Peace we have reached a point of absolute passivity. It has been implied, if not outright taught, that with the advent of Yeshua our Savior, we're supposed to pray and then sit and wait for God to do everything. Not true. We're supposed to wait to be called to action by God. Then we, before we go into action... We prepare through learning and prayer. Today, most Western Christians find it a whole lot easier to outsource that action part. Better to pray and write a check. Hire somebody than to get up, do it yourself. Be in service to God. Learning and prayer is never going to be a substitute for action. But action without the direction of the Lord is totally futile. We're going to get our hands dirty. We're going to get battered and bruised in the process. We're going to have failures. We're going to make mistakes. That's the intended Christian walk. That's how it works. Verse 29 shifts gears on us a little. We have the sudden insertion about Moses appealing to this fellow named Hobab, son of Reuel, the Midianite, to come along with Israel on their journey. And this Hobab fellow is reluctant to go. He says, nah, I'd rather return to my native land, which is Midian. Well, who is this Hobab fellow? Well, that's always created some controversy. He's identified in numbers as Moses' father-in-law. Yet, in an earlier book, Exodus, Moses' father-in-law is identified alternately as Reuel and Jethro, each, each role. Now, there are a number of solutions to explain what's happening here, and in general, they all revolve around the way families are spoken of in the Bible. That is, tribe and clan usually arrange them. Okay? We in the West are used to dealing with first and last names. Okay, which can be pretty useful in identifying a person in their family tree. The Hebrews, as most ancient cultures, didn't use that kind of a system. Okay. Rewell is probably the name of one of many Midianite clans. Jethro is just a member of that clan. Holbob is either, is either just another name for Jethro, Yitro, in right, another language, or it's also possible that Hobob is a brother-in-law to Moses and therefore of the same clan as Reuel. So it's very hard to know. Okay. In other words, when we run across this, we shouldn't think in terms of error or inconsistency. Just think in terms of trying to understand the way ancient cultures operated. Okay. In fact, even the term father in the Bible can be equally applied to a person's biological father or his grandfather. In the Bible. Same term. Okay. Now those of you that have been learning from me for a while know that uh, I think that the location of Mount Sinai was not in the Sinai Peninsula. Right? Uh, at the traditional location of St. Catherine's Monastery. But I believe it was on the Arabian Peninsula. Um, I'm not going to go over all the reasons today. But Paul states that Mount Sinai was in Arabia, Josephus says it was, and so does Philo. And the Bible also makes it clear that when Moses was in Midian, it was there in Midian that he was called to the burning bush. And the mountain of the burning bush is exactly where Moses was to lead Israel when they left Egypt. In other words, Mount Sinai and the mountain of the burning bush are the same mountain. Frankly, that part actually is the usual teaching. But what's not usual is the actual location of that mountain that I say was in Midian. Now, here in Numbers 10 is more evidence of this, I think. This Hobab, a man whose home was Midian, was currently wandering with Israel. He says, I want to go home. Moses says, "Oh no, continue with us in the wilderness." Why did Hobab want? uh, Why did Moses insist that Hobab come along with him? Look at verse thirty-one. It says, "Because Hobab knows where we should camp and be our guide." Well, we find out in Joshua that Hobab the Midianite is also called a Kenite. Now, have we run into another conflict? No. Being a Midianite identifies the tribe. Okay, being a kenite is a place or a location that's identified with a clan. Okay, look. You can be Smith or Jones and also be a Floridian, right? It's not a mutually exclusive problem. All right? One denotes the family, the other the location or even the location of a branch of your family, a clan. The kenites operated primarily on the uh Arabian peninsula just north of Midian right up here all right and then off to the west a little bit kind of up just just above the uh uh this finger here of the gulf what's now called the gulf of Aqaba um, where i'm heading is that Moses wanted Hobab to guide them because Hobab was pretty well familiar with that area where they were going Israel was on, I believe, the Arabian Peninsula at this time, immediately east of the Gulf of Aqaba and home to the Midianites and the Kenites. Now this makes a whole lot more sense than somehow thinking Hobab was familiar with the Sinai Peninsula, a wasteland that really was only inhabited by a few Egyptian military outposts and a handful of Bedouins who just wandered through it. Well, as we near the end of chapter 10 we see that the first leg of Israel's trek was a 3 days journey, which means that at most they traveled maybe 30 miles, and I suspect probably a little less, probably around 25. However, saying that something is a three-day journey does not mean they traveled for three days. Okay. The vernacular of that era, see, it didn't express distance in miles or kilometers, or something like that. Rather, distance was expressed in time. In in the modern day of the automobile, we really, unthinkingly do the same thing. Someone will say, how far is it from Cocoa Beach to Daytona? The answer is something like, oh, about an hour and a half. Right? A three-day journey was like saying, oh, 30 miles. So, they may well have and probably did take more than three days to cover a three-day journey, what was known to be a three-day journey, due to the fact that they weren't used to striking camp, they weren't seasoned travelers, and they were an enormous and unwieldy population that included children and the elderly. Well, Israel followed this fire cloud. And though it doesn't say they stopped and camped every evening, certainly for the most part they would have, at this point in history, there was no... Hurry. There was no real reason to hasten right now. Just so we understand one another. Each time they stopped and camped overnight, they did not set up the wilderness tabernacle. It was only when the fire cloud rested. Okay. Meaning that it had come to a place where they were supposed to sojourn for a time. Did they go through this arduous process of reassembling that sacred tent? Now, verse 33 does present us with a problem. It says that the Ark of the Covenant led the column of Israelites. Earlier in the chapter, it indicates that the Ark traveled in the midst of Israel with Judah at the head. Now, rabbis have tried to hash this out over the years to resolve this obvious conflict. Some rabbis think that at times the Ark led, and at other times it didn't. Still others think there could have been two Arks, but to me that's a real stretch. I cannot tell you that I know the answer to this. That the ark may have led sometimes and not others could make sense depending on the situation. We do know, for instance, that after 40 years when Israel made ready to cross the Jordan, the ark did for sure lead. Because we're told that the moment the feet of those carrying the ark touched the water on the eastern bank of the Jordan, the water got dammed up upstream and created a nearly dry riverbed for them to cross. Now, it could just as easily mean led in a more general sense, right? In that it was always the presence of God that went before Israel when they journeyed. Well, before we part, depart this chapter, let's talk about talk about the Ark of the Covenant for just a little while. Now, in this portion of Numbers, it is clear that the Ark is seen as serving a definite military function. For Israel. It serves as a guide. As a protector. And it's also the sign of the God of Israel's presence among them. Now, what that ark meant to the people of Israel and what it meant to their enemies is very well demonstrated in 1 Samuel chapter 4. There we have this little interesting tidbit. It says, When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were frightened. For they said, Yehoveh has come to camp. Oh, woe is us. Who can save us from the power of this mighty Elohim, this mighty God? Now, the Philistines, as was standard procedure for most armies, brought with them their images and banners of their gods when they went to war. The Philistines obviously recognized the Ark of the Covenant as representative of the God of Israel. Now, what's equally as interesting is they knew the God of Israel's name. Something that is practically masked by all Bible translations. Because in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 4, most of your translations will say something about God has come to camp. Woe to us. Actually, it says, yud heh bav has come to camp. And the Philistines, as did every nation within a thousand miles of Egypt, they knew who full well this Yahweh, this Yehovah, this powerful God of the Hebrews, they knew who he was. He had devastated Egypt and scared the wits out of them. But it also demonstrates something that adds to our understanding of the Hebrew mindset in that era. And the Lord's willingness to permit that mindset to continue for a time. And even that the Lord himself gave Israel a way to understand him that was actually quite in harmony with the way that all the peoples of the earth understood their gods. If the Lord had not instructed Israel to make that ark and to carry it into battle with them, then Israel would naturally have assumed that their God preferred not to go with them into battle. Definite disadvantage for Israel. Of course, that wasn't the reality of God's essence or nature that he was somehow inhabiting the ark. And he was limited to having power only when the ark was present. But that's not something the Hebrews were prepared to fully comprehend. Along with that is that if their enemies saw that they had no representation of their God with them, it would have emboldened Israel's enemies, given them courage and a hefty morale boost because to their minds it meant that Israel had no God. To help them in battle. I mean, we, we can look at all that and kind of chuckle a little bit at the silliness of it all. But it was quite real to all the peoples on earth at that time, and just as much so to the Hebrews. Okay. You don't completely change men's minds about centuries of what had seemed self-evident fact and custom just by demanding it even if you are the God of the universe. Therefore, the Lord seems to have graciously graciously given to Israel what it needed. A golden ark that symbolized his presence with Israel that served as both an encouragement to Israel and a warning to those who would confront Israel. Whoa. Saw you nodding off out there. Now let me amend that a little bit Though by saying that even though the Philistines and others would see that ark as an image or representation of the deity of Israel, as they understood that their own gods, about their own gods with their images, that's not precisely how Israel saw it. Okay. Rather, Israel understood that the ark was God's footstool. And even though it was a very dangerous footstool, when it was approached by the unauthorized. Yet it was not God himself. The ark wasn't God. So in some ways, the difference between how the Philistines and the other nations saw their God images and how Israel saw hers was kind of a matter of degree. Now one other important difference that bears mentioning is that the Israelites recognized that the ark was not Jehovah's permanent residence. But the other nations did think that the image of their God and the God him or herself was actually just one and the same thing. The idea for Israel is that when the Lord deems that he wants to communicate with Israel or make his will and presence known, it's above the ark where he will come to do that. Well, this chapter closes with a poem that actually embodies the understanding of just how the ark operated and the Lord God in relation to it. Now, many Bible translations begins the poem with the word advance. And in Hebrew, the word is calm. K-A-M, calm. Now, calm is used here as a verb. And what it means is to move into position to, to attack. So advance isn't wrong, but a rise gives us a much better picture of its sense. Okay. Moses well understood that the divine rules as given in the Torah were that it was above the ark where the Lord would manifest his presence. But the ark was to be within the tent sanctuary when that happened. Therefore, the Lord did not, so far as Moses was aware, become present above the ark when the ark was traveling. Further, since the Lord God promises Moses that he would defeat Israel's enemies ahead of Israel, the word picture expressed in this poem is that the Lord rises up and away from the ark and then goes out to do battle for Israel. Thus, in verse 36, when the battle is over and the camp of Israel comes to a rest, and therefore the ark comes to a rest, the tabernacle is re-erected, the ark is set in its proper, guarded place, and then Moses beseeches the Lord to return. Now, this beautiful and joyous hymn that glorifies the God of Israel was placed here for emphasis and actually to display some irony. Because after all this praising of Jehovah and his invincibility and his perfection and the fear, simply the sight of that ark, produces in Israel's enemies almost immediately, complaining and rebellion begins anew among the Hebrews. This attitude of reluctance and rebellion, this is what we're going to see emerge starting in Numbers chapter 11. And we'll begin that next week.